Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of selections, and I use it all the time for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I have personally read or listened to. I'll include my suggestion at the end of the episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marine history for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 96 of History of the Marine Corps, Post-War Disillusionment, Part 3. This episode closes the chapter on Marine Corps activity during the 20 years between wars. Concepts we're familiar with today, such as training, officer assessments, organizational structure, and aviation, saw significant improvements, and we touched on some of that during this episode. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. In the 20 years between the world wars, the training of Marines, organization, technology, and overall living conditions saw a drastic improvement. Although these new enhancements seem standard today, it was a significant change to the Corps. Throughout the entire history of Marines, Devil Dogs almost exclusively used rifles, pistols, and manned the occasional naval gun. These skills are what the Marines were known for. Every Marine is a rifleman. Their primary concern was to be proficient at small arms, and they exceeded expectations with their proficiency. The limited use of weapons meant that Marines could be quickly trained in their craft and become an expert in a relatively short period of time. Any additional training seemed like a waste, and little attention was given to more warfighting education. But the United States saw considerable shifts in the culture and intellectual advancements between World War I and World War II, and these advancements started to trickle down to the Marines. Before the war, officers rarely had a college education. Some didn't even graduate high school. But this requirement changed, and the Corps started to require college education for officers. Both officers and enlisted in the Corps were given additional schooling to meet a Marine's new responsibilities. Officers would attend a primary school upon their entry into the Corps, then be sent to company officer school a few years later. Before becoming field officers, they had to attend a year's course in the advanced Marine Corps schools. On top of this required training, many officers attended specialty training in gas warfare, motor transport, communication, and multiple other fields. Enlisted Marines had similar requirements for their specialty and would attend schools to help train Marines in their specific MOS. As technology advanced and modern warfare became more complicated, the Marine Corps had to adapt and focus on the intricacies of modern warfare. 
The training improved the effectiveness of Marines, but there were some unintended consequences. Marine historian, Lieutenant Colonel Clyde Metcalf, voiced his concerns in 1939, quote, With the better educated corps of both officers and enlisted men who have been pressed into the same mold by the standardizing processes of our educational system, colorful characters have practically ceased to exist in the organization. As in any other military organization, the favorite topic of conversation in barracks, in the mess hall, and with groups of officers, wherever assembled, from the very beginning, has been the actions and remarks of the Corps' highly colorful and sometimes more or less eccentric characters. The remarks of such persons as Fritz Wise, Hiking Hiram Bears, Jim Boots, Pop Hardy, and many other colorful characters which have so often been repeated will soon pass from the memory of the Corps. Unquote. On the other side, a lack of colorful characters doesn't necessarily mean a less efficient Corps. Standardized training and consistency were vital in getting such a large organization on the same page. And to push back on Metcalf a little, we had no shortage of colorful characters when I served. I was enlisted, so maybe this change primarily impacted officers. Before World War I, the Marine Corps operated with minimal support staff. Since its origin, the role of the Commandant has served mainly as an administrator. Headquarters only contain the Commandant, Quartermaster, an Adjutant and Inspector, Paymaster, and a couple of aides. After the Great War, the Commandant realized that the resources needed to support the Marines before World War I were no longer adequate. The Marine Corps looked towards the Army staff system to meet these new demands. An operations and training section was developed to handle the responsibilities previously held by a general staff. The quartermaster morphed into supply, and they were split into multiple specialties to address the requirements of Marines. Commanding officers for larger commands used to deal with the administration themselves, but now they were given an organized staff to handle all their needs. On December 1, 1920, General Lejeune issued an order that reorganized the headquarters staff. Quote, the planning section was expanded into the Division of Operations and Training, composed of operations, training, material, military intelligence, and aviation sections. Although it was not organized according to the numbered system employed by major field commands, the Division of Operations and Training nevertheless was divided into functional subdivisions encompassing operations, intelligence, training, and logistics such as were found in the field-type staff. There was no personnel section, however, and the aviation section was an organization not located in the executive team of significant field commands. Staff organization for the control of aviation matters was complicated by the fact that the officer in charge of marine aviation served both the Commandant of the Marine Corps and the Chief of Naval Operations, unquote. As first organized in 1919, the Marine Aviation Section was directly under the control of the Director of Naval Aviation in the Office of the Chief of Naval Operations. The duties of the Marine Aviation Section included supervision of recruiting, training, personnel, and logistical matters on aviation. In addition to more support and training, 
the living condition for Marines improved after World War I. The primary reason for this was their exceptional performance on the front lines. Before the war, Marines were primarily known for their proficiency at sea, quick amphibious landings, and standing guard. No one thought Marines could take on entire armies and succeed, but World War I proved these people wrong. Marines left no doubt in anyone's mind about the tenacity and effectiveness of the Marine fighter, and this trait showed the United States the actual value of Marines. U.S. citizens thought highly of Marines, and this brought substantial support, which translated to more financial help. Nicer barracks were constructed for Marines, and the discipline for Marines revolved more around administrative punishments rather than prison sentences, which were pretty common previously. Routine duties were not as hard to endure anymore. Facilities were built in the barracks or on base that offered Marines more recreation and amusement. Quote, in the pre-war years, a Marine was more or less a social outcast when away from his ship or barracks. He was usually welcome only in the ordinary saloon or in the house of ill fame, unquote. With new entertainment provided to him, Marines got in less trouble. Another significant change was how the Corps assessed the qualification of their officers. Before 1916, assessments were usually made on record cards. The Adjutant and Inspectors Division of Headquarter Marine Corps introduced new documentation into the administration system. Form 652, titled Report on the Fitness of Officers of the U.S. Marine Corps, was created and it documented the qualification of Marine Corps officers. Throughout the years, this fitness report saw multiple changes. During our World War I episodes, the Marine Corps didn't deploy artillery in the war until right before the armistice. After the war, Marines received multiple 75mm and 155mm guns, and they took advantage of the peacetime to button up their artillery skills. Artillery units were provided with 3-inch anti-aircraft artillery, 50 caliber machine guns, listening devices, and searchlights to help protect against enemy attacks. Marine officers were sent to Army artillery training and their dedication to their craft created units that are equal, if not better, than any regular artillery unit. Arguably one of the most substantial changes to the Corps was the development of the Fleet Marine Force. After the U.S. involvement in Cuba, where Marines were needed to hold Guantanamo Bay, and during the Spanish-American War, where Marines were required to hold the Philippines, the Navy saw the need for a well-organized military force to take with them for seizing and holding advanced bases of operations. Shortly after 1918, the Navy and the Marine Corps started planning for a contingent of trained Marines to be kept available for just this reason. This idea wasn't necessarily new. Attempts to create a similar force was tried before 1917, but the war halted those efforts, and Marines were organized for Europe. In 1933, after Marines were recalled from Haiti and Nicaragua, the opportunity presented itself to revisit this idea. The Fleet Marine Force was organized, and it became an essential part of the United States fleet. 
Marines who supported the fleet were separated into two large commands, one stationed at San Diego, California, and the other at Quantico, Virginia. Major General Lewis McCarty Little oversaw the fleet and stood up his headquarters at San Diego. The 1st Marine Brigade was commanded by Brigadier General R.P. Williams, and they were stationed at Marine Barracks Quantico, while the 2nd Marine Brigade was commanded by Brigadier General John C. Beaumont and stationed at San Diego. Each of these brigades contained an infantry regiment, a battalion of light artillery, a battalion of anti-aircraft artillery, an aviation group, a light tank company, some engineers, and some chemical marines. The total strength of the fleet force in 1938 was 4,585 marines. This period of time also saw the growth of the Marine Reserve. In 1914, requirements for a reserve organization began to appear to support a national emergency, but not much was done to fulfill this requirement. Two days after the United States entered World War I, the Corps' reserve numbered only 35 Marines. By the end of the war, those numbers rose to 6,500 and included 300 women. But despite the growth, the post-war disillusionment contributed to the decline of a strong reserve force, and they suffered from a, quote, lack of a definite policy and appropriation for the purpose of equipment and training. In 1925, Congress pushed for a reorganization of the reserve force, and the approved act authorized a volunteer reserve force. By the end of the 1930s, the Marine Corps consisted of a fleet Marine Corps reserve made up of officers and enlisted with previous military experience but in inactive status, the Volunteer Marine Corps Reserve, which was composed of Marines with similar qualifications as a fleet reserve, and the Organized Marine Corps Reserve, consisting of 18 infantry battalions, an artillery battalion, and 12 aviation squadrons. All of these Marine Reserve units were available for active duty in times of war or national emergency. The aviation squadrons were still a relatively new concept to the Corps. Marines were exposed to a few aircrafts during World War I, the most notable being the DH-4s, also known as the Flying Crates, H-boats, which were single-engine seaplanes, and Curtis trainers, also known as Jennies. Aviation was still new in the U.S. military, and Marines filled this role as a separate specialization. Quantico was developed into an aviation field and became the main aviation center for Marines. A smaller airfield was kept at Paris Island for a few years, and another group of Marines was stationed at Naval Aviation Station at San Diego, California. Marine Corps pilots were trained at Pensacola, Florida, and by 1921, more than 1,000 officers and enlisted were assigned solely to aviation roles. This growth in aeronautics resulted in a considerable increase of resources required to maintain the planes, and most personnel and equipment were used to preserve the aircraft. By 1922, the Marine Corps had acquired and became proficient at multiple different crafts, and the aviation strength was big enough to create a small aviation command. It consisted of one observation unit, one fighting squadron, and a balloon section. By 1927, 
The Marine Corps supported five aviation squadrons at Quantico, three at San Diego, and four outside of the United States. Although the growth of aviation was happening faster than ever, it came at a cost. Many early officers and enlisted who piloted the aircraft during the developing stage didn't make it out alive. Military aircraft weren't as dependable as civilian aircraft, and Marines ran into many problems when piloting over jungles and other isolated areas. By the end of the 1930s, every Marine brigade of the Fleet Marine Force had an aviation group assigned to it. 112 airplanes were authorized and distributed among nine squadrons. Seven of those squadrons were used for warfare. Two of those seven were used for fighting, another two for bombing, and three for observation squadrons. The other two were used for general use and were made up of transport, amphibious, and different types of aircraft. By 1938, 175 officers, 40 flying cadets, and 1,100 enlisted supported these units. Pilots were trained to operate planes from aircraft carriers, landing fields, and on some occasions from water. In the 1937 Annual Report of the Secretary of the Navy, the fundamental tasks of the Marine Corps were outlined in four simple bullets. To provide adequate and trained Marine detachments on board vessels of the Navy, to maintain the Fleet Marine Force in immediate readiness as a tactical unit of the United States Fleet, to protect naval property and shore establishments within the continental limits of the United States and in outlying possessions, and to protect American lives and interests in disturbed areas involving operations ashore. There's a reason why the first bullet calls out having adequate and trained Marines on naval vessels. Throughout the history of the Corps, Marines have always served on maritime vessels and will do so in the foreseeable future. This partnership is vital for a strong naval presence. During the same report, the Secretary of the Navy breaks down the Marines fulfilling each of these requirements. There were 109 officers and 2,526 enlisted serving on 48 ships. Marines also had 172 officers and 4,464 enlisted serving as guards for naval activities. In addition to the Secretary of the Navy's requirements, the Commandant of the Marine Corps set forth the primary and secondary missions of the Corps. Quote, the primary war mission of the Marine Corps is to supply a mobile force to accompany the fleet for operations on shore in support of the fleet. This force should be of such size, organization, armament, and equipment as may be required by the plan of naval operations. Also, it should be further utilized in conjunction with Army operations on shore when the active rival operations reach such a stage as to permit its temporary detachment from the Navy. The secondary mission of the Marine Corps in time of war is to continue the performance of its peacetime duties. Unquote. Two years after this annual report, the world was sucked into another war. The United States wouldn't officially declare war until December 7, 1941, when Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. 
but the preparations the Marine Corps made provided the necessary talent and equipment needed for many of these battles. Marine Corps aviation arguably had the most improvements, and aerial warfare took off. Between World War I and World War II, Marine aviation was the only U.S. military air service that saw combat. They served in Santo Domingo from February 1919 until July 1924, in Haiti from March 1919 to August 1934, and in Nicaragua from 1927 to 1923. Every engagement resulted in Marine pilots obtaining combat experience and developing new ground and air warfare tactics. While in Santo Domingo, Lieutenant Lawson Sanderson began experimenting with dive bombing. He discovered that he could hit a target more often by pointing his plane towards the target and releasing his bomb from a makeshift rack after diving to a low level, around 250 feet, and at an angle of about 45 degrees. This angle and practice came to be known as glide bombing in World War II. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll explore the history of Marine Corps aviation. Welcome to this week's book recommendation. This week's audiobook is The Unknowns, the untold story of America's unknown soldier and World War I's most decorated heroes who brought him home by Patrick K. O'Donnell. I've mentioned O'Donnell before on this podcast. He is a historian who wrote We Were One, where he actually stood shoulder to shoulder with 1-3 as he fought through Fallujah. It's hard to go wrong with any of his books, and The Unknowns is no exception. It follows eight of the most decorated, battle-hardened veterans that served as body bearers for The Unknown Soldier. These stories are beyond extraordinary. Now, I checked this morning and the book is free on Audible until April 7th. This is a good twofer. If you're new to Audible, use your free book on another title and then download this one for free. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free copy of this audiobook and a free 30-day trial. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.